Steve Donahue with the Legacy Podcast. This episode is number 265, and this is going to be part one on a message that I delivered on prayer at while I was pastor of Mount Tabor Baptist Church earlier in the year. Thanks for listening. Well, I am sure that some of you, at least I'm thinking that some of you, have probably seen that Abbott and Costello episode of Who's On First. You remember that? I, uh, if you haven't, haven't seen that, you can, of course, go to YouTube and type it in and, and watch it. And I'm not normally one who's into that kind of humor, uh, but I rewatched it yesterday after uh, thinking about this uh, message today, and uh, I actually laughed a little bit, which is a hard thing for me. Uh, I don't laugh much. And so uh, watching it uh, just kind of... Uh, uh, cheered me up a little bit, and certainly it's just one of those silly comedies that I thought was quite funny. And so if you haven't seen that, uh, you might want to watch that. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, just just know that it's uh, it's talking about who's on first and what's on second. And uh, I, I don't remember all the rest of them, but we're not talking necessarily about baseball or who's on first today, but we are going to talk about the who's of prayer. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to divide it up into three sections. One is, who is it that is to pray? Secondly, to whom are we to pray? And thirdly, for whom are we to pray? And I'll say this in preface, just as I mentioned it earlier, uh, this cannot be an exhaustive study on prayer. Uh, But I'm hoping that it will be uh, as much detailed as as we can uh, to this point. And I'm going to be all over in the scriptures. You can see the scripture passages that I will be going to. I've written them in your bulletin insert. And if you'd like to turn there and follow along, if you're really good at finding the Bible verses, um, I am certainly encouraging you to do that. Uh, if you can't, then you can go back home and uh, look them over this week and just verify what I'm saying is true and um, and uh, meditate back upon these. So, first of all, let's look at who is to pray. Who is to pray? And the first thing is that all believers are to pray secretly. All believers are to pray secretly. Uh, We see this in the passage that I read this morning in Matthew chapter 5. And in the context of that, he is talking about the Pharisees praying on the street corner so that they might be seen by everyone. And they were hypocrites in doing that. They wanted to be known as being very religious. And so they would go to the street corners and they would make it known that they were praying. And everybody would be able to see them pray. And he, in contrast, says this. 
He says, but when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the street corners and the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. Now, the first thing to notice about that is that he assumes you will be praying. He says, when you pray, he doesn't say if you pray, he says when you pray. The assumption is that we will pray as his people. And so he says, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, pray to your father who is in a secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then verse 7, and when you pray, do not use vain repetitions. Again, notice he doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. The assumption is that we will be a praying people. And then he says, pray our father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. And so not only does it say when you pray, indicating the assumption is that we pray, he actually commands it. He says, when you go into your room to play, pray, pray this way. Now, the great thing about praying in a secret place is that no one has to hear you. Uh, that's the best way to learn how to pray is to pray in your secret place. Pray silently before the Lord or even audibly in your own secret place and pray before the Lord so that he may be able to hear you. And what does the Bible says, it says that when we pray in a secret place where no one can hear us, the reward he gives to us is open. You see, the scriptures seem to indicate that either you will get your reward now by the praise of men or you'll get your reward later by the praise of God. And when we pray in secret, he is able to reward us openly. And then first Timothy chapter two, verse eight, it says this. I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so we see here another command that it says and the men here doesn't necessarily mean just males. I think he's indicating all men, all mankind, all, all people are to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, let me ask you this. If you were to uh, not talk to somebody for a very long time, what kind of relationship would you have with that person? There, there has been uh, people that I have grown up with that I have not really spoken with, except for maybe a, uh, you know, a comment here or two on a picture they send through Facebook in a long, long time. And our relationship isn't anything like it used to be. Because we just don't communicate like we used to communicate. We cannot expect to have a relationship with God if we rarely ever talk to him. And so, indeed, the scriptures are right when it tells us and calls us to pray. There has been a movie that has come out recently. Some of you might be familiar with it. Maybe some of you have watched it last year. It came out called War Room. And it deals with prayer and the spiritual battle that takes place within prayer. It's written by the Kendrick brothers, the ones that made Fireproof and some of those other ones. And it's a fantastic movie. It demonstrates both the power of secret prayer and the spiritual discipline that is acquired and developed as a result of doing such an activity. And so let me ask you this. Will you make a commitment to start a regular time of secret prayer in your life? So all believers secretly, but all believers also are to pray corporately. We see many examples of this taking place in the New Testament church in Acts one of the first places in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where it says this. These all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. The idea is, is that they were gathered together. And when they were gathered together, they were praying together corporately for one another and for the things uh, that God had commanded them. When we meet together as a church, it is right that we pray. And indeed we do. 
We, we pray an invocation in the mornings, and then we uh, pray uh, invoking God to come and meet with us here in this place. And then we have a, a pastoral prayer. We have a benediction. We have a prayer over the offering. We have different kinds of prayers that are designed in a congregation that we might corporately come before the Lord, and we might be able to lift up our voices before Him. And so my question is, how do you react, or how do you conduct yourself when those prayers are taking place? Now, uh, obviously, the ones that are actually participating in leading those prayers, you can hear what they're saying. But what about your heart? I, I know that this happens to you because it happens to me. Somebody's praying and you're thinking to yourself, I wonder what we're having for lunch. Yeah, I forgot to take the dog out. And your mind wanders, doesn't it? It's probably, some of you might be having your mind wander even right now as I'm speaking, so you didn't quite catch that. But we, we have to discipline our minds so that we might be able to cooperate together in submitting those requests before the Father. And so when somebody is leading in prayer, we should be agreeing with them in prayer. We should be praying silently with them as they are praying. As they are saying something, we're thinking to ourselves, yes, that's right, Lord. I agree. Yes, Lord, that's right. I want to think the same thing. Yes, that's what we need to have happen. And we need to be saying that over as someone is leading us in prayer. That's what it means to pray corporately together. And then also the scriptures tell us that elders have a particular role at, play, at prayer. And by elders here, I don't mean those who are older in age. I mean those who have the office of pastor or elder. In Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we see something very interesting taking place. And that is the apostles are uh, burdened by all the different responsibilities that they have. And the context of that is that there are some... Uh, who are not receiving food from the church that need to receive food because there was just too much demands upon the leadership within the church. And so uh, they, they call together some other men that would be able to take and relieve the responsibility of the apostles or the elders in this case. And so in, six, in chapter 6, verse 4 of Acts, it says, But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. In other words, there is a, a particular responsibility that those who are in leadership within the church, those who are elders within the church, uh, those who are pastors, ministers of the word, they have a particular responsibility to be continually, diligently praying for the church and in the ministry of the word. That is, those who are called to be ministers should occupy a great deal of their time in prayer and in preaching of the word. All believers are to pray, but so much more so for those who are elders, James chapter five, verses 13 through 16 says this is anyone among you suffering. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Confess your trespasses one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, the context of this verse is the sufferings of persecution. And this addresses the prayer for all believers to have towards one another. But then it, acts, it actually calls for elders to have a particular role in that, in coming to the person's house and praying over them and with them for them to be strengthened and healed from their sickness. James was one of those elders in the church. In fact, uh, he was known as one of the elders in the church in Jerusalem. And the James that is written here is the, the James, most likely the brother of Jesus. And um, he, he was known as a very pious man, but he also got the nickname as Camel Knees. And the reason he got the nickname Camel Knees 
is because he spent so much time on, on his knees in prayer that he developed calluses on his knees that looked like camel's knees. Um, that, that, that's a great testimony to a man who spent some time in prayer. And so uh, pray for me. Pray that I would be diligently devoted to prayer. And I spend some time in prayer, but nothing like that I need to. In fact, what very often happens with me is I get so involved in doing that I fail to take the time to actually pray. And um, we'd go so much further if I spent half the time doing and more of the time praying. And so pray for me. Pray that I would be uh, a man of prayer. Um, And then also uh, sinners who want to be saved should be praying. Joel chapter 2 verse 32 says this. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant who calls or who the Lord calls. Acts chapter 2 verse 21 picks up on this. Peter, when he's preaching to the Jerusalem lights, he says this. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Paul also picks up on this in Romans chapter 10. He says, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so he makes the important distinction here between believing and calling upon the Lord. And it's important to note that he says they must first believe and then they call on the Lord. But you will not call upon the Lord unless you first believe. And if you believe, you will call upon the Lord. And so that seems to be the logic behind it. Now, some have mistakenly understood that all I need to do is call upon the Lord, pray the sinner's prayer, and that's it. In fact, there is this saying, this poem that says this. Now I lay my fears to sleep. I prayed. Now the Lord must keep nothing to lose, everything to win. I prayed the prayer and now I'm in. (laughs) That's that's not what it is, is it? Uh, That's not the idea. And unfortunately, there is this concept in Christianity today that if you're a certain age and you walk down the aisle and you pray the sinner's prayer, that's it. You're in. But that's not what gets us in, is it? What gets us in is faith in Christ. And that faith then will respond in certain ways. I think it's important what is said here by one commentator, Bob Hayton. He says it this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it speaks of the saints as being those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 22 also speaks of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In both of these places, the idea is used as a descriptive term for those who are worshipers of Jesus. This again is in Acts chapter nine, verse 14. Also, call is a continuous present tense idea. Uh, Not those who did call for salvation, but those who do call continually upon the Lord. The New Testament use a follow, uh, follows a persuasive Old Testament usage of the idea. In the Old Testament, the phrase is often used of praying to God in a specific circumstances for help. But it also refers to a general concept of worship. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. The wicked are those who do not call upon the Lord, Psalm 14, verse 4, but the righteous do. Sometimes God delivers them physically or spiritually after he calls for help. And other times God delivers, provides the impetus for believers to call upon him. And so sometimes he responds and sometimes we respond uh, by calling upon him. In one sense, calling is what believers do. They come to God for help. 
But in another, it is who they are. They are worshipers who call upon their God. Everyone then who calls on God, who is a worshiper of God, who worships God now and continually, all of these can expect ultimate salvation. Salvation is often referred to ultimate salvation or glorification, not justification. So then, call out to God does not save, but those who are saved will call out to God. And so are there some who call out to God that aren't saved? Yeah, you probably heard the description before. There's no atheist in a foxhole, right? Uh, And then yet some of those foxhole conversions don't really come to fruition, do they? Um, But we do know this, that those who want to be saved and believe must call out to God. That's what the scriptures say. So then, who is to pray? God's people are to pray. So do you pray? I hope that you do. Um, If you don't pray, then you must ask the question, why? Is it because you don't know how? Well, hopefully, um, over the next several weeks, you'll, you'll have a better understanding of that, and that will be able to encourage you to do that. Is it because you have no desire to pray? Well, if that's the case, that would, I would really be concerned, because um, if you don't have a desire to pray <laughs> to the God who gave you life, then uh, I would question my own salvation. Or is it because you have no time? We're all busy, aren't we? And yet, uh, we need to make time for those things. That are important. Sometimes it's just a matter of discipline. This is why prayer has traditionally been considered a spiritual discipline. Just as you discipline yourself to get to work on time, you discipline yourself to spend some time in prayer. And so here's, here's what I want you to do. Commit today to spending five minutes every day in prayer. Will you do that? Five minutes? Now you think about five minutes, I can do that until you start to pray. And then after two minutes, you've prayed for everything you can possibly think of. And you still have three minutes left. And you think to yourself, now what do I do? Right? Five minutes seems like a long time when you actually start praying. So just commit to five minutes. And then um, as, as you develop that skill and develop that discipline, then that can grow. But be a praying people. Secondly, to whom are we to pray? To whom are we to pray? Well, I think this goes without saying, but we're to pray to God. Uh, in fact, in uh, chapter 6 uh, of Matthew's Gospel, verse 9, where we already have read and it talks about the Lord's Prayer, it begins by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Matthew Matthew 6, verse 6, it says, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who hears. And so this gives us some important insights. It was a completely radical concept that God would be treated or God would be called upon as Father. It was true that we could call upon Him as the Lord Almighty, the Holy One, the King, the Father. But the Father? That was a radical concept. And yet, He tells us that we can call upon Him as Father. He is the Heavenly Father. There is an intimacy there. Mark chapter 14, verse 36 says, And He said, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will but to what you will. That's the way Jesus prayed. He prayed to the Father as His Father. He said, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. But we also know in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, we're told to, to reproach Him in the same way. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And so it's a radical thing that we can actually, I mean, think about this for a moment. Here's the God who, who said, let there be light. And there was light. The God who said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the water. And there was an atmosphere. The God who said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was raised to the dead. It's that God that we're able to call out and say, Abba, Father. That's radical. That's incredible. And that should encourage us to be able to call out to him. Now, the word Abba, Father here. Um, literally, if you could translate it in our today's vernacular, you know what it would be? Daddy. That's what it means. It's not, you know, sometimes you, you some of the old school people, I had a friend of mine like this, who uh, his, his grandparents wanted to be called grandmother and grandfather. You know? And, uh, and, and his parents called them mother and father. You know, real formal, right? And there was nothing wrong with that. But that's not what the picture we have here. It's not as though God is saying, you better address me as father. No. He says, I have given you the spirit of my son so you can address me as Abba, father, daddy. And that's incredible. And so we're to pray to God. But also the scriptures indicate that we can pray to Jesus. Obviously, Jesus and God are one in the Godhead, and yet they are different persons within the Trinity. And so we can address them individually as persons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Paul uh, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus, our Lord. And so he's, he's speaking here to the church in Corinth, and he's saying that I'm greeting you along with everybody else who calls upon Jesus. And so we can call upon Jesus to, to hear us in, in our prayers. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Here again we see this. It says, concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times. Paul here is speaking when he talks about the thorn in his flesh and how he prayed three times that it might go away. And it says that he prayed to the Lord three times. And when we come across that word Lord in the New Testament, it's not talking about the Father. It's talking about Jesus. And so we have him uh, speaking about that. And then also Stephen, when he was being stoned in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, says this. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, isn't that interesting? By the way, that's another place you can go to if someone says, uh, where does it say that God and Jesus are one? Well, right here, it says that he was praying to God and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And so he prayed uh, to Jesus there. And then John, in writing the revelation that he wrote uh, near the end in chapter 22, verse 20, he says this. He who testifies to these things said, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So as he is penning the letter, he is actually writing a prayer saying, come, Jesus. He is asking him to do that. And then um, we are commanded by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make melody in our hearts to who? To the Lord. 
And so we can give him praise, we can give him worship, and we can lift up our voices in prayer to him. In essence, all of our prayers are to be to the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is to be a Trinitarian concept in the Scriptures. Now, having known that then, we are not to pray to any other but the Godhead. We are not to pray to angels, to the dead, or to any such creature. Uh, There's a commentary I'd like to read about that. And it says this, Equally important is to whom we are not to pray. Some non-Christian religions encourage their adherents to pray to a pantheon of gods and dead relatives, saints, and spirits. Roman Catholics are taught to pray to Mary and various saints. Such prayers are not scriptural and are, in fact, an insult to our Heavenly Father. To understand why, we need only look at the nature of prayer. Prayer has several elements. And if we look at just two of them, praise and thanksgiving, we can see that prayer is, as its very core, worship. And when we praise God, we are worshiping him for his attitudes or his attributes and for his work in our lives. And when we offer prayers of thanksgiving, we are worshiping his goodness and his mercy and his love and kindness to us. Worship gives glory to God and only one deserves to be glorified. The problem with praying to any other than God is that he will not share his glory with any. In fact, in Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord. That is my name. And I will not give my glory to any other or my praise to idols. So what do we do with our friends and our relatives and those that we know that might be Roman Catholics? And they've been taught to pray the pray Hail Mary. And just so you know what that says, I'm going to read it here. It says, Hail Mary, full of grace. Our Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So what are we supposed to do with that? How does such a tradition come about? Well, it has to do with the term or concept, the mediatrix. Now, I'm going to get a little bit technical here, but stay with me. Uh, Mediatrix carries the idea of the mediatorial role of Mary. And mediatorial role means the go-between, the person who is able to intercede for us. The idea is that Mary, because of her closeness to Jesus, has a certain merit ability to be able to Get in good with Jesus, so to speak. And because she's able to get in good with Jesus, she is able then to um, help us in our praying to him and uh, in that role. However, what does the Bible say? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And so if we are going to pray to the Father through anybody, it needs to be through Jesus Christ. A mediator is someone who intercedes between two parties to resolve a conflict or to ratify a covenant. And Jesus is the only mediator. There is no merit, no more merit in Mary or any other saint than there is in anyone else. And uh, to believe otherwise is to believe contrary to the scriptures. I like the way the Westminster Longer Catechism says it. It says, God only being able to search the hearts, hear the requests, pardon the sins, and fulfill the desires of all and only to believed in and worshiped with religious worship, prayer, which is a special part thereof, is to be made by all to him alone and to none other. We should never pray to any but the triune God, and we must do what we can to encourage others to do the same. We have, um, we as adopted children of God have an incredible opportunity. We can pray to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the the one who has asked us to lift up our voices to Abba Father, the one who holds the universe in his hand. 
and uh, we can pray to him. And that's an incredible thing. And in case you don't think that is so, can you imagine if uh, I came back here and I said, hey, I, I got invited to the White House. I'm able to go and speak to President Obama. Uh, that People would think that's pretty cool, right? How much, how much worse or how much better is it? Uh, I mean, whether you like Obama or not, it doesn't matter whether you are an Obama fan or for a Bush fan or whoever's going to come next. The president of the United States is like a worm compared to God. And we can lift up our voices to God and have him hear us through Christ. That's incredible. And so we are to pray to him and him alone. This next section, well, I'm already out of time, and this is the longest section. The next section is going to be for whom we are to pray. Obviously, we're supposed to pray for other people. And so this uh, looks specifically at some people that we are to pray for. And the first one is that we are to pray for the sick. Of course, this uh, you know comes in as standard practice. But in James chapter 5, verse 15 and 16, it says, And pray for the faith. Will, the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This is, of course, why we have a list in our bulletin of people who are in need of prayer and uh, people who are struggling physically. This is why we ask each morning when we gather as an assembly to lift up our voices for those who are sick and those who are hurting, those who need to be healed. It's right for us to do that. It is good for us to do that. Those are the kinds of people that we are to pray. And so are you praying for the sick? Secondly, we are to pray for the lost who will be saved. We are to pray for the lost who will be saved. John uh, or in John's gospel, it records the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. And in verse 20 of that chapter, he says this, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? Those who are not yet believers, but will be. And he is praying for them. And so we shall as well. He sets the example for us in that. Now, do you know who these are? I don't. <laughs> I don't know who they are. They could be our neighbors. Maybe not. They could be our children. Maybe not. Hopefully they will be. But we are to pray for those who are lost, who will yet come to faith. And because we do not know who they are, we pray for everybody who's lost in, in hopes that they all come to faith, right? And uh, so, you know, each week in the Bolton insert, we have uh, a list of a people group who have yet to hear the gospel, who have yet to believe. And uh, it is our hope that by praying for that people group, that some from among them actually come to faith and believe. And then we're to pray for those who are in authority. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says this, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and all who are in authority, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And so we are to pray for those who are in authority, that they carry out their activity in such a way that they might be without hindrance in our service to him. And as a result of that, that the gospel might go out and that more people might be saved. So are you praying for the president? Are you praying for the senators and the legislators? What about the lesser magistrates at the state level and at the county level, your board of supervisors and the sheriff and the mayor of Dillwyn? And are you praying for these people? Um, I think that we should be. I have in the bulletin each week a, a list, basically, of uh, different groups as they're designated out versus executive versus legislator versus the uh, the court systems and we can pray for them each time uh, you know it'd be a whole lot better uh, and i struggle with this myself but if we spent the time that we fuss 
about our leaders and we spent that time praying for them, how much better would that be? You know, we can watch a political debate and fuss about how horrible it's going to be, or we can spend some time praying for those in authority over us, and certainly we should pray for those in authority over us. And then we're to pray for Christian workers or ministers of the gospel. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, uh, we are to pray that they might be raised up and that we might raise up more of them. It says, Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers in to the harvest. Did you know that the Southern Baptist Convention is having to cut back on its staff and cut back on its missionaries? Uh, we need to be praying that God raise up more missionaries, that more people can go in to the world. And then secondly, that they would be able to spread the word of God and God would be glorified. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Colossians chapter 4, verse 3 says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. So are you praying for your pastor? I hope so. I know that some of you are. I appreciate that. What about missionaries? Other church leaders. So we're to pray for those who are in Christian work. And then also we are to pray for one another. This again should be obvious, but just in case uh, we have forgotten in chapter 5, verse 16 of James, it says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. We have already looked at praying for one another when it comes to being sick, but we should also pray for one another who are well, that they might continue to prosper, that they might continue to grow in the knowledge of the grace of of God. Are you praying for one another? And then we are to pray for ourselves. This, of course, is where most of our, our time lies. Unfortunately, when we pray is mostly about ourselves and what we want and what we think we need. And uh, certainly we are to pray for those things. And uh, we see an example of Jacob when he prays that when he faces Esau, that Esau would not kill him. And he prays to God that he would be delivered from that. And God, of course, heard his prayer in that. And Jesus in the garden prayed that the cup might be taken from him. So he was praying for himself in that regard. And so it's not wrong for us to pray for ourselves. We just need to balance that with these other things. And then we are to pray for those who are not yet born. This might seem odd, but we are. In fact, uh, I already mentioned this, but in John chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And in that, he prays for those who have not yet believed. Did you know that when he was praying that, he was praying for us? Because we had not yet believed, but we had not yet been born. And yet he was still praying for us in that. And we see an example of that also with David. And uh, David, after he had committed his uh, sin with Bathsheba, uh, Bathsheba became pregnant. And uh, the child was struggling. And God had told him that the child was going to die. And so he prays. And it says, Now therefore... Let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever, O Lord, has spoken it, and it will bless the house of your servant and be blessed forever. And so he is praying uh, in that case for all those who will be raised up as descendants and inherit the blessing of the promised land. And then uh, we'll speak about that other passage momentarily as well when he talks about he prays for this child that was still yet in the womb. And um, he was praying for that. We are also to pray for our enemies. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. 
And that's the hard one, isn't it? That, that's the one that has the most difficulty. The, the person that has wronged you. The person that has treated you unkindly. What does the Bible say that we are to do? We are to pray for them. This is what Stephen did when he was being killed. If you recall, when he was being stoned, it says, Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. He was praying for them. Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And these are the people that killed him. In both cases, they were being killed, and yet they were praying out to God for that. Now, I wish that Christians would... uh, spend the time and the energy that they do in all their threatenings and their name-callings and their bellicose speech against the Muslims. Instead, they would pray for the Muslims. You know, we can talk big about how much we're going to destroy all the Muslims, but how about we pray for them that they'd be saved? That, that's what we need to do. Or what about that family member that seems to be causing so much turmoil in your home? Are you praying for that person? Or what about that, that person at work? That boss that you have that just seems to be rubbing you the wrong way every time and seems to be finding every possible way of criticizing you at work. Are you praying for that person? Or what about that ex-husband or the ex-wife who treats you so poorly? Are you praying for him or for her? So we need to pray for our enemies. But one thing is clear is that we are not to pray for the dead. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 15, verse through verse 23, I had already mentioned this passage, but this is where uh, David had uh, committed sin with Bathsheba. She is with child, and uh, Nathan uh, comes and tells um, David that the child is going to die. And then um, David prays that God would have mercy upon the child and that uh, God would spare the life of the child. And then the child dies. And David no longer prays. He puts on new clothes, no longer is in mourning, no longer in sackcloth, and he walks around as though everything's fine. And his leadership comes to him and says, David, what's the deal? When the child was alive, you were in mourning. And now that the child is dead, you seem to be happy. How does that work? And this is what he says. He says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And so we're not supposed to pray for those who are dead. There's a tradition in foreign religions of the East particularly to pray for dead ancestors. In fact, I clean windows all over Richmond, and some of them I clean are are nail places, and nail places typically are run by Orientals. And very often there's a little place over there where they've got a little statue of Buddha, and they've got some offerings there. And I asked one time what those little offerings are, the little fruit offerings and stuff, and they said they're offerings to dead ancestors. Are we to do that? Of course not. We're not supposed to pray for the dead, and we can honor those who have passed on. But we're certainly not to pray for them or offer anything to them. The Westminster Larger Catechism, again, helps us in this. Uh, Question number 183 says, For whom are we to pray? And it says, We are to pray for the whole church of Christ upon earth, for magistrates, ministers, for ourselves, our brethren, yea, are even our enemies, and for all sorts of men living, or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those who are known to have sinned the sin 
unto death. Now, I'm not going to get into that one. I mentioned a little bit last time. But So who is to pray? Everyone in their respective roles in private and in public. To whom are we to pray? To God and to him alone. And for whom are we to pray? We are to pray for every class of people present and to come, friend and foe alike. And so are you a man or a woman of prayer? You know, one of the beautiful things about praying is it takes no money. You don't have to give to the church to pray. It, it doesn't take any special outfit to pray. It doesn't spa- take any special um, books to pray. It just takes time. And uh, the other beautiful thing about it is it doesn't even take a whole lot of health. And I know that there are times as you get older that you don't feel like getting out. You don't feel like doing the visitation. You don't feel like coming to church even sometimes. And I can understand that. But you can still be a person of prayer, can't you? And, uh, you know, I know that there are probably some in this church that are already like that. But you know, you know what I would love? I would love for there to be a handful of older ladies or a handful of older men who would just spend hours a day praying for the church, praying for the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a blessing to the church? Wouldn't that be a blessing for the kingdom of God? They, they have time, and they can do it right there in their closet, right there in their home. So will you be a person for prayer? Let's pray. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? Just like the plant that withers away, we will leave many seeds behind. If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you do to change your legacy?